0: snuff production This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We're talking about something that I personally find exceptionally fascinating today, and that is Islam, and it's because it is the newest of the old religions. That's right. And it's mm. fascinating. Well, to me, I know some people might go, "What? I just find it really interesting and the way it it grew and and the way it plays out in the Middle East particularly and which country belongs to which faction and there's all these different political arms to it as well. Um, So I hope you find it interesting. Keith, talk to me about when it became birthed.
1: All right. Well, let me just say how I got involved in this because I think it, it helps to ex- explain my perspective on this. So uh, I've been involved with religions in one form or another for half a century and uh, trained to be an Anglican lay reader in the United Kingdom. So I was always aware of Islam and, of course, aware of Judaism. As you say, it's of the youngest of the three religions, what are called the religions of the book. So you've got Judaism, Christianity, and then Islam. Um, and if you read um, the Quran or you read the New Testament, you find a bit of overlapping with what you've got in the in the Old Testament. So um, I've been involved in giving talks on this for decades. The turning point for me came on 9-11, which is 2001, when we ended up with the terrorist attacks in the United States. And I had great difficulty in trying to explain to the people who were interviewing me why people should want to fly planes into buildings because um, that was obviously it was an act of suicide. But in this country, because we're comfortable, complacent, secular people, we can't imagine anybody wanting to die for a religion. It just seems so far-fetched. And yet here we have a group of uh, Nineteen. there should have been 20, but a group of 19 citizens of the Middle East, mostly Saudi Arabia, um, who were guaranteed an income for life. They're rich people. And yet they were willing to kill themselves in these attacks. And um, normally when we think of suicide... We think of suicide as a result of a form of depression or people wanting to die to put themselves out of some sort of misery because they've got a terminal illness, etc. Uh, which is why my colleague, the Reverend Alan Walker, created Lifeline. And the number there is one three triple one four. So most people, when they think in Australia of suicide, they think of depression. But in fact, there is another form of suicide where you actually commit suicide and you are absolutely blessed out of your mind you know you are really so happy you're doing it um, we saw that for example in Japan with the um, way in which you had the suicide uh, attackers on the American warship or Allied warships in World War two um, what happened there is that the pilots were told uh, you're to fly but you are not to come back these are the kamikaze pilots divine wind a kamikaze and um, they, a lot of them were already engaged to be married. So a wedding would take place at the moment they died and the groom would be represented at his funeral by his photograph carried by his parents. So his bride would be married and would be widowed simultaneously. But this is because of the Shinto religion and dedication to the emperor. What we've seen in with the suicide terrorists uh, of 9-11... People willing to die for their faith. And because we in the West live in such comfortable, complacent, secular society, we cannot understand the views of most of the people in the world who do follow one religion or another. The two big ones, of course, are Christianity and Islam. And go to China, for example, you've got people who are persecuted for their Christian faith. They are not being seduced by Chinese materialism. So it is very interesting that we, uh, relying on Australian media, do not get a clear indication of what's going on in the world because they're all written by secular journalists. And, in fact, there's a whole dimension to all of this that revealed, I think, on 9-11. As a result of 9-11, we get in uh, the Club of Rome and other organisations creating the Parliament of Cultures. Uh, based in Turkey. So for many years, I was flying to Turkey for discussions and trying to find ways of bridging the gap between this world of Islam and, um, and the, if you like, the West. It's very interesting. I was actually in Turkey in the lead up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And I tell you, you look at the world differently when you know Iraq is over the border, down the road. So for, I, I got incredible insights as a result of that. So for me, I, I've been able to see the importance of Islam in the lives of so many people, not only in the Middle East, it began in the Middle East. It began with Muhammad, peace be upon him, um, who was uh, who lived between 570 and 632. So we're talking about a religion that is 1300 years old. Um, the word Islam itself means submission and it means submission to God's will. Um, so Muhammad is seen by Muslims as the real messenger of God. And so he... Um, received messages from God, calling the locals in what is today Saudi Arabia to a whole new type of religion, getting away from their local animists and you know other forms of worshipping of trees or whatever they had down in that part of the world at that time and believing in one God. So that's the, the similarity between Jews, Christians and Muslims. They all believe there's only one God.
0: And they've got a Jesus, don't they?
1: They they recognize Jesus but only as a prophet. Right. Right? Christians recognize Jesus as being very significant. The Muslims say yes, we recognize Jesus and his mother Mary, the only woman who gets a mention in the Quran. So, the, so she gets uh, an important position in the Quran, but they are not accorded the same significance in the Quran as they are in the Bible.
0: So, when did it break up into Sunni and Shia and all these things that people would
1: probably hear on the news and not really quite understand? Yeah. So, the, uh, the problem is that Muhammad, as I say, he died in the year 632 in the Christian calendar, uh, which is what we follow. Um, Muhammad did not indicate how the faith should be continued. And so there was a dispute between those who believed that the the new leader of the Islamic State, an expression, of course, which has come back into fashion (laughs) recently, the new leader of the Islamic State should be elected. And you had others, and they're Sunni, and you have others, Shia, partisans of Ali, who believed that it should go down through the royal line. So you had this dispute, which was over governance. It wasn't over doctrine, right? Very different from the religious wars that you have in Europe, you know, between Protestants and, and Catholics. It wasn't an argue, argument over doctrine. It was an argument over governance, if you to use modern terms. So you had the Sunni and the Shia, who um, have had this different attitude. Now, the the leader within the Sunni community would be Saudi Arabia, or at least they would see themselves as that, and the leader of the Shia community would be Iran, or at least they see themselves as that. So there is in the Middle East this battle between Sunni and Shia that has been going on now for a long time, but it increases in temperature and then it goes down. Um, and, and this
0: has been since Muhammad died.
1: That's right. So, it's right, there's a war that's gone on for 1,300 years, except that the war, the dispute sometimes results in violence, sometimes doesn't. You know, I come across Muslims who are Sunni or Shia and they're working together, right? So what, they're not fighting each other.
0: Yeah, and what's, what are the major differences between the practice of either of, of them?
1: There, there are some differences, right? You, you've got to bear in mind that, you know, a lot of people when they come to Christianity are just amazed at the diversity, right, of Christianity. But you've got to say the same about Islam. You have a variety of different sects. So it's very difficult to make a generalisation, to say what is the average Muslim. There is no average Muslim. Um, I would argue there's no average Christian either, but certainly there's no average Muslim and that there are just so many variations. So Sunni and Shia would be one way of categorising them, but even when you get into the Sunni, you then have subcategories. When you get into the Shia, you've got subcategories as well.
0: And is this all to do with the interpretation of the Quran?
1: Well, based, well, that's a separate issue because about a quarter of the Quran is not clear. So the Quran is written in a very high Arabic. I, look, I've been to conferences of Arab specialists um, and it's interesting, you have more than one version of Arabic. So an Egyptian uh, might have difficulty speaking to somebody from Saudi Arabia, for example, if they're using the local dialects. Um, and so the Quran was written in a very high form of Arabic Bit like you're trying to read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales today, for example. That's a, in fact, Canterbury Tales be written around the time of the Quran, but in English, old English, right? Mm. And we use a different type of English. So the same with the Quran. So there's quite a bit in the Quran which is not clear, um, even to the scholars. So you do get differences as to what the passages would mean. Now the Quran um, is only allowed to be in in. Uh, in Arabic, my version is in English. So it's not a, an authentic version because it's got to be in Arabic. But as I say, many parts of of the original Arabic are themselves unclear. And these are people you get um, in the madrasas, in the Islamic schools, uh, you get children who are memorising the Quran. It's got to be kept in your head. It's got to be in Arabic. Um, but then you've also got to say, well, there, there are some passages there that just... You get scholars who disagree it. Right. So it's, a, it's a really complicated subject. This again comes back to me, you know, back, in, back to 9 11. We had uh, people, uh, when I was doing radio talk back, would be ringing in, quoting bits from the Quran. You know, saying the, uh, and saying, well, look, this is how you understand Osama bin Laden by by these particular passages. Um, but in fact, my argument is that I cannot understand bin Laden from reading the Quran any more than I could understand George Bush from reading the Bible, mm. and he claimed to be a Christian, and Tony Blair, and of course John Howard. <laughs>
0: This is Global Truth. With Dr. Keith Suda, we're talking today about Islam. It's a 101 lesson, learning the basics, you know, which country belongs to which religion, you know, Sunni, Shia, all that kind of stuff, bit of the history, um, but not in the boring way that, you know, other people might tell it, in the in the, in the the really good way that Keith can break <laughs> things down and explain it. Only Keith can do. Um, so when we look at the Middle East, Keith, uh, we're talking Sia Shunni, um, uh, the way is divided up. Yeah. So, which countries are which? Like, this are the big names.
1: So, well, Saudi Arabia has a, a predominantly Sunni population, but it has a Shia. Remember that all the lines in the Middle East, except for Egypt, all those borders were drawn up by Europeans. So the locals, Persians and Arabs, had no say in the redrawing of those boundaries. Somehow I'm shocked. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. 80% of all the borders in the world have been written by Europeans. Right. So, uh, including here in Australia. So... um, that it, it, it's very diff- that When you look at the Middle East, you, you have overlapping populations, etc. Um, and so the borders really don't make sense. I think one way of trying to make sense of the Middle East is perhaps to look at the way in which Islam has expanded. I, I talk about three ways of Islam. So, in the very beginning, so it's in the seventh century, uh, you get Muhammad uh, who's on this campaign. And so you get this expansion. And it really is an amazing expansion in the world of Islam. So it grows out of today's Saudi Arabia, um, goes through the Middle East, North Africa, and then gets into Europe. Um, So it expands very quickly. And you've got to ask yourself, why was Islam so popular? Now, it may well be that Islam has a different attitude from Christianity. So Christianity uh, with Jesus wasn't really interested in secular politics. You know, his attitude is you give to Caesar what Caesar, and you give to God what's God. So there was, in Jesus' mind, there was a distinction between church and state. In the Islamic world, that's not the case. Muhammad was a mighty military ruler. He created the Islamic state. In a way, we didn't have a Christian state with Jesus. So these are people who were well organized. They were good fighters, but it was also a message that appealed to people. Um, it was a message of justice, of the need to share wealth, um, you know, we talk a bit about um, the whole question of uh, Islamic uh, financing, which is an idea which has been simmering along. If you read, go back to the Old Testament, so we're back on the Jewish Bible, there is a ban on lending money at a rate of interest. It's what's called usury. So bl- so banned at the time of the Jews. The Christians, um, when they started to build up their own countries based on Christianity, they tried to ban usury. But then the Protestants came along and they figured out how you can lend money at a rate of interest and gave us the banking system that we have today and despise, right? Muslims are saying you cannot lend money at a rate of interest. It's very interesting. So usury, this idea that you get people into debt and you grind them down, which we see, of course, with the allegations in the current Royal Commission, Um in the Islamic tradition, they were saying you must look after the Arab privileged. You must give away some of your wealth to help the poor. One okay. of the pillars. Yeah, it's one of the pillars of the faith. So, yes, uh, the, the the early Muslims were certainly very strong at imposing their faith elsewhere. But also it was an attractive faith. If you were poor, dispossessed, you've got periods when you have to stop for prayer and you have to wash yourself down before you have the prayer. Well, if you're working in a hot climate, that's a great. You know what Australians would call a smoko. (laughs) (laughs) So we recognise that as well. You know, you take regular breaks, you wash yourself down, you cool yourself down, you're cleansed, and then you can have a period of prayer. So there's a lot that was going on that appealed to peasants, and so the faith grew rapidly. So the, for me, the, the first wave was this rapid growth. In the year 1000, if we were to, uh, if you were to send your children to an overseas university to get a good education, you would send them to the University of Baghdad, the House of Wisdom. So the learning, the centre of learning for the Western Hemisphere, including, you know, all the Middle East, etc., all of that, would have been in the um, in the Arab world. Channel Seven, that's that's an Arabic numeral. They were the leaders in astronomy, uh, which then covered a bit of astrology, medicine. They invented coffee, which, to which I'm addicted. Yeah,
0: didn't that come from the South Americans?
1: We did a bit later on, but it first it originated in the Middle East. So that was the high point. So then, in the fifteenth century, you get the fight back by the Europeans. And so the Europeans then have had their 500 years of European dominance. And we need to look at the end of what I call the weird world, you know, the Western educated world, right? So we've had 500 years. And so at that time, we see the Muslims being pushed out of Europe, a key battle. We talk about 9-11, that's September 11, 2001. September 12, Bin Laden was out by one day. September 12... In the year 1683, we get a major battle in Vienna, when the Christians beat the Muslims and forced the Muslims out of Eastern Europe. So that that was 912 in uh, 1683. That's the second wave. So then Europe starts to colonise the Islamic world. Queen Victoria, for example, uh, in the year 1900, was the leader of the largest number of Muslims in the world because of British India. And then what we're now going through is a third wave. And in this third wave, the Islamic world is bouncing back. Um, And we see the, the discovery of oil, in the Middle Eastern world. So you've got, obviously, Saudi Arabia, very important for the United States. Iran, which was very important for the British. So you get the development of the oil industry there. In 1979, you get the Iranian Revolution, where uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, overthrows the Shah and stands up to the Americans. Remember, they take over the embassy in Tehran, hold the diplomats for 444 days. Meanwhile, in Afghanistan, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan and eventually will be driven out in 10 years' time. So 1979 for me is the beginning of what we call the long war. So the long war will run on perhaps for 100 years. General Leahy has said it's 100 years. I don't give a date that specific, but it's going to be a long war. Uh, it's going to run on for an awfully long time. Not necessarily it, Islam versus the West, uh, because we've got to go over there to fight. You know, if we leave them alone, they might well, well leave us alone. I was
0: about to say, they seem to be fighting each other pretty exactly. well.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Most of the people who have been killed by Islamic terrorists have been Muslims. Um, so we are collateral damage. We're on the periphery of this struggle that's got to go on as Islam tries to modernise itself. If you think in European terms, we had a war in Europe that ran from 1517 to 1648, triggered by Martin Luther and the Reformation. The Islamic world is going through its own Reformation process today.
0: Can they modernise, Keith? And are they likely to modernise,
1: though? We will not know. Well, you might. You're younger than I am. You might eventually see it. But that's the battle that's going on, you know, the improved status of women, for example. The whole issue of of young people wanting to get access to the Western way of life.
0: But ironically, and you've seen that a lot in places like Iran where there's a really educated... Group of people who just are soaking up everything Western.
1: Exactly. Yep. And also, of course, wanting to do their own religious faith differently. The, you see, the problem for the United States and the West generally is that okay, we're the richest people in world history, but we also have an incredibly high rate of depression, a suicide, people, opioid addictions, etc. So, although we're wealthy, we lack a sense of purpose. So in the Islamic world, they would argue their faith gives them a sense of purpose and helps them to get through the day. And the problem for us is that in the West, we have the equipment to win the war on terrorism, but we don't have the will. Muslims fighting that war on terror have got the will, but they don't have the equipment. It's going to drag on for an awfully long time.
0: Mm, Very poignant stuff. Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Live Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.